One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Jennifer Ryan. First, the usual housekeeping. Subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, if you like what we do, then please do go along to iTunes and give us a review. Then tell all your friends about it. Now, you might remember that not so long ago, the banks collapsed and Ireland was catapulted almost overnight into economic meltdown. You might also have noted that the commentary and analysis of what had just happened was provided almost exclusively by men. But the austerity that followed, the bailout of the banks and the dismantling of many public services impacted disproportionately on women. In today's episode, we are bringing you a fascinating discussion about women and economics. It was chaired by our presenter, Cathy Sheridan, at the weekend as part of the Mountains to Sea Book Festival's event to mark International Women's Day at the Lexicon in Dunleary. You'll hear Cathy in conversation with the journalist Dawn Foster, whose book Lean Out counters arguments made by Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg in Lean In, in particular the view that trickle-down feminism benefits everyone. Also on the panel, prize-winning economist Francis Wheatman, who asks, whose model is it anyway? I'm delighted to see you all here. I have two wonderful women here who I'm approximately twice their age, if not more. <laughs> and I can't, I am very honoured to have them sitting beside me here. Um, and as somebody who actually had to learn very quickly about economics when we hit the crash here in Ireland, um, I have read both their books and found them deeply enlightening and written in such an accessible way that making this a theme of an International Women's Day uh, talk is just, I think, inspired because it's really about the fact that we have so few women economists. Um, Frances in particular, but both, this is Dawn Foster here, who is, who's just 30, born in a mining community in Wales, in poverty, in an unemployed single parent family, and was actually in the care system as a teenager. And I was then quite amused to read about Frances here, who, as a Durham University student, wrote a blog subtitled, Just Another Middle Class Nothing Wanting Some Attention. (laughs) So I thought the contrast actually was a delight. (laughs) And she also recently retweeted uh, a tweet by the the economist Nassim. Is he a statistician? Uh, Yeah, he's more of a statistician. Maybe it's the same thing. I'm not terribly sure. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who said, the best thing that could happen to society is the bankruptcy of Goldman Sachs. So we kind of know where Francis is coming from. And you'll get a very good idea where Dawn is coming from as well very soon. Her book is called Lean Out, which is a a, a counter uh, blast to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And you'll be hearing a lot more about that. Anyway, you won't be be surprised to hear that in her book, Francis... uh, has written, uh, 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 it's titled, Whose Model Is It Anyway? Referring to the the, the branch of knowledge that is economics. And she challenges the basis of current economic thinking, likening it to a religious faith. 
So you can see that she is not all that delighted with how economists formulate their little schools of knowledge and how they apply in, to, to everybody, but in particular to women. Now, France, you're pretty rude about economics as a branch of knowledge. Leave, leave, yes. leave, leave aside the, 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 equality, the inequality thing for a moment. Tell us a bit about economics and the schools of uh, the various theories and the ideological... Um, contradictions and all that sort sure. of thing. So economics is often thought of as being the study of money, but really that's quite inaccurate. Really what it is is a study of the way that people behave in constrained situations. So as a result, the study of economics end up, ends up being basically a weird intersection between the humanities and mathematics. So economists use mathematics to analyse the way that people behave in certain scenarios. Now the problem with that is that if you're using something which is quite mathematical, then it ends up being quite cold-hearted and you end up making the wrong assumptions about the way that people behave and losing the humanity behind the way that people make decisions. If people make decisions, they tend to do it in an emotional way. People have gut feelings about things. If you've even got you know, a financier on Wall Street, if they're deciding to pull out of a market because they think it's about to crash, they will make that decision partly based on the numbers, but also partly based on gut instinct. Now, the, the sort of mainstream framework that economics uses with mathematics doesn't allow for that gut feeling. And so their predict predictions often quite fall short. So my book essentially is about the assumptions that especially mathematical economists hold about the way that the world works and the reasons why they then fail. And this actually contributes to things like financial crashes and you know, the terrible things that happened in 2007. Now they base, Francis, their whole theory, whatever the school of economics, they tend to base it on this one kind of capitalist who's actually a bit of a nightmare and yes. also possibly a psychopath. And Francis calls him homo economicus. We'll deal with femina economicus a bit later, but let's just stick to homo economicus yes. for the moment. What is he like? If, if our whole economic model is based on this creature, then what, what, do, what, what do we get out of that? Well, I mean, I liken homo economicus to a psychopath because, in a way, he's very, very cold-hearted. He doesn't care about other people. He's not at all altruistic. He doesn't get any benefit from helping anybody else. And he doesn't make decisions based on emotion. And it's also, I mean, homo economicus is partly a sort of um, second cousin to utilitarian thinking. So in utilitarianism, say, it could be argued that if you had the choice between, you know, saving one person and saving four people, but you end up, you know, killing someone in the process of saving four people, you choose to kill somebody in order to save four people. Um, so homo economicus is very similar to that. Um, and you end up in a situation where actually people in reality don't behave like this. People actually are kind and caring and positive. And homo economicus doesn't reflect this. And pretty much any mainstream economic theory is based on homo economicus as an ideal. Which is kind of fascinating, isn't it? If they, they don't think about us. I mean, even the lovely men here in the audience. I don't think you're included because, Cormac, you're far too nice. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very strange thing. Dawn, and that in, 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 therefore has to be linked to the psychology of real-world economics and real-world economists. Does that come across to you, you know, in how decisions are made and in how, how this, this, this impacts on the welfare state, mm. um, on the markets, you know, the market is king, as we know, um, yeah. on, our, on our priorities as we see them coming out of economic models? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think too often we, um, especially 
in public life, we think of economics as a hard science, when actually it's much more like a humanity in many ways. You know, um, a lot of it isn't fully underpinned by, uh, by the hard science and hard evidence. A lot of it's very, very ideological. So, for instance, with austerity in uh, the UK, um, that's a political choice. It's not an economic necessity. So, you know, the government will come out and say that we need, you know, that, that we have no choice, there is no alternative to borrow Margaret Thatcher's phrase, um, but to get down the deficit. And the only way to do that is to uh, cut, cut, cut benefits from the very lowest. And obviously that that is an ideological choice. It doesn't, it doesn't bear out in the numbers, so austerity doesn't then uh, massively make the country wealthier. And often um, what you find is that the political decisions that a lot of uh, politicians make in the long term end up costing more. So if you, for instance... Um, enact the bedroom tax, you might make more people homeless and that will then cost more in the long run. Can you explain to people here yeah. what the bedroom tax is? So the bedroom tax is, um, uh, it, it's, it's a policy brought in by the uh, coalition government in the UK in around about 2013. And what it meant was that if you lived in a council property, so a property owned by the local council and rented out to you, and you had what they deemed a spare room, you would then have a certain amount of money deducted from your benefits. So your rent would stay the same, but the amount of housing benefit you were paid would go down, which meant that you would then have to find that from you know, the money that you spent on food or gas, etc. Um, but the biggest issue was it was how they deemed what was a spare room. So um, the, people it, the people it hit the hardest were people with disabilities. So um, I've never, ever come across... A property that had a spare room so a room that wasn't being used by you know it that didn't have people sleeping in it for instance most most people who had these spare rooms either had um a, a carer using it overnight when they came in and looked after them or more often it was uh people who had very very severe disabilities and their partner used the spare room to sleep in because the equipment uh in 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 the main bedroom meant that they couldn't sleep you know it was too noisy so a lot of disabled people um found that they had their benefits cut by um i think it was on average about 40 pounds a week and they had no option but to move house and obviously a lot of their homes had been adapted to help their disability so these people were moving house to say 40 pounds a week and then would have to you know the council would then have to spend upwards of a hundred thousand pounds to you know change it and you know it's entirely a political decision. It's not based at all on recouping money. It's an ideological decision. It's a decision that's taken economically and politically and ideologically to basically say that, um, that, you know, that this party believe that the poor don't deserve the money they get and it's you know, an ideological war on the poor through the guise of economics. And I know, Dawn, that, that um, I'm reading work of yours actually as well, that women are affected disproportionately mm. by cuts in public services. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when, when the Conservatives first came forward, you know, with uh, David Cameron and George Osborne, who've now moved on and left us in a mess in the UK. Um, when they first came in, their, their their mantra was, "We're you know we're in this together." So they they put forward the idea that uh, that the austerity regime was a natural economic reaction 
to the crash of 2008 and that everybody was, was having to pull together, you know, tight, tighten, their, tighten their belt. And they likened it to, like, going on a diet in the short term. But actually, first of all, the wealthiest uh, became much wealthier under the Conservatives and the poorest became a lot poorer. But the biggest impact was um, when you look through the impact of all the cuts... Um, in 2013, 80% of all cuts uh, were felt by women. So, um, you know, so for, for every single cut, w- one out of five, you know, hit men, the rest hit women. And the most recent, um, the most recent analysis shows that, you know, it was 80% in 2013. Now in 2018, we're looking at um, 88% of cuts hitting women. So it disproportionately hits women and it disproportionately hits the poorest women. So it is entirely an, an, ideological, um, an ideological choice and it hasn't saved any money whatsoever. The biggest kind of spending in welfare is on pensions. And so we're not addressing the, you know, the fact that we have an ageing population um, and the fact that we spend so much money on housing benefit. So, you know, we spend a huge amount of money on housing benefit, which goes into the pocket of private landlords. So if they really wanted to save money, instead of, you know, hurting single mum, mothers, instead of, um, instead of targeting the disabled who have, you know, a, a room that they use for their equipment, what they could do is build more social housing and spend less money on housing benefit. But that's, you know, even though that saves more money in the long term, it doesn't fit ideologically um, with, with their economic, you know, stance. That resonates I, very much with your audience. There's one thing I would say on that, which is what the Conservatives did in especially 2010 and 2015 mm. general elections is really, really interesting because what they essentially did was they used economic dogma in order to persuade yeah. people to think that there was actually an economic case for austerity. Mm. Now, I would argue also as an economist that if you do the slash and burn that they've done, it doesn't actually reduce deficits. You know, they would stand in front of the general public in debates and so on and say, you know what, we need to reduce the country's national deficit and so on. And we're, we're the answer. We're, we have the, the solution to do this and the alternative party doesn't. It isn't true because what effectively happens is if you do a slash and burn instead of just hiking up taxes a little bit is that those at the very bottom of the social ladder, they don't go out and spend as much money as they used to and they actually spend larger proportions of their disposable income than other socioeconomic groups. So it creates an economic slump at the bottom and therefore doesn't reduce the deficit. It Just doesn't work. Yeah. Francis, you argue for a total clearing out of so many of these schools <laughs> of economics. I mean, you just want to burn nearly <laughs> all of them, actually, and basically start again. Yes. Um, why does, does anybody else see this? Um, I think the one strand of hope within economics is uh, behavioural economists, because Mm. what behavioural economists have done is they've taken economics back to basics and said, economics is the study of human behaviour. So let's actually test these sort of of dogmatic principles that mainstream economics has held. And they've proven a lot of them to be false within experimentation. The question really is, how do you apply the results that they found in experimentation to the real world? Because a lot of the experimentation that behavioural economists do, they happen in really kind of sterile conditions that don't exist in the real world. You don't make you know, simple decisions between one chocolate bar and another in this really kind of plain environment. You do it when you've got lots of distraction going on. You've got marketing. You've got your own personal you know, experience of the world. And obviously, you can't account for that in an experimental environment. 
Now, Francis, supposing the model had been Femina Economica. Mm-hmm. Um, I Googled her last night, actually. I didn't, I, I actually, I thought it was being very clever. I said that there has to be an equivalent of homo, and that must be Femina, because it's, it's, it's Latin rather than Greek. Um, so I Googled, and there is such a creature in Google, if you, if you, if you, if you Google her. Um, and um, I assumed it would be the equivalent of homo economicus, except she would be female, obviously. But in one blog, she was defined as someone who makes a priority of her, situ- of her economic situation in a tone that suggested she should be killed immediately. <laughs> very punishing. And if she happened to marry, she's a man's parasite. So... It's very interesting how on the, one, on the one hand we have the homo economicus who is the model for all that is right and good in the economic world. And on the other side, I'm not being victim here, I'm not a victim feminist, but actually it did come across loud and clear uh, that this, this person is not desirable at all. Um, in a different world, uh, Dawn, what would, what would the feminine of homo economicus be? Um. I think looking at how we can uh, kind of reconfigure um, economics to uh, benefit society um, as a whole, I think there's a really, really big focus on kind of personal individual wealth. And actually, I think we should be looking at different modes of wealth like time and whether or not you can contribute to your you know, local community. Um, I think part of the problem is that everything has become very, very individualised and... Um, I think there's far too much focus on um, on the kind of cash value of everything. So um, maybe a different economic system would look more closely at um, you know the fact that if we have a problem with some people being unemployed, some people some people being overemployed, we could look at um, the fact that, for instance, productivity is a big problem in the UK. Um, Perhaps one issue with productivity is the fact that we're working very, very long hours but not actually producing a huge amount for it. And one thing... Actually, we, your productivity is not good at all, is it? No, if I no. say so without being rude. No. <laughs> um, and and, and, and when, when, you actually look at, um, when you actually look at studies on productivity, I mean, I was speaking to some people in Sweden who worked in a factory and they decided to cut the number of hours they were working. And productivity increased, even though they were working fewer hours. Um, and, I mean, almost everybody I know who works in an office knows that there's a huge amount of downtime when you're working in an office where you're just pretty much... You know, faffing about. So maybe we could look at the fact that perhaps if we had shorter working weeks, we could spend more time um, on childcare, more time on volunteering in the community, actually connecting with fellow man and woman. Um, so looking at kind of different models that, 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 you know, move away from the fact that we've become a society where we have, you know, it's almost impossible now to get by without two people working in a household. So if we can look at different ways of doing things, you know, maybe working fewer hours for the same pay to increase productivity, but also then relying on childcare less because you can look after your children yourself and also get out into the community more. So build more relationships, look at more kind of cooperative um, ways of doing things. So, Frances, how would Femina Economica look to you? I think I would more want to answer the question as to how a functional economics that incorporates a female viewpoint would look. Because, well, yes, I um, because I think one of the big problems that we have with economics is that the main way that we measure economies and how well they're doing is with GDP. Mm. Now, I would say somewhat jestingly that this is an example of men being obsessed with the size of something as opposed to whether or not something's any, any good or not. 
Um, because effectively what it does is it looks at how much money is in an economy and that's it. It doesn't look at sustainability. And under a model of GDP, effectively you can have situations where, say, building a load of houses that are only going to last a few years, knock them down, then build them again, is actually more beneficial than building something that's going to last 200 years and is to the benefit of everybody. So what we really need is a more holistic view of the way economies function. So it means looking at things like, there's things like there's the economics of happiness and things such, such as this, more sustainable views of economics instead of just looking at just the monetary value of things, which is, as I say, a very stereotypically male viewpoint. But where would you start, Francis? I mean, that, that's, that, that sounds a bit, a bit, a bit abstracty. I mean, if you were talking, if, if, if our Taoiseach was sitting here, yes. what would you, where would you tell him to start? Um, I would want to give more credence to the economics of happiness because there are rankings of happiness mm. in indices across We're countries. A very happy country, actually. I would also want to look weirdly. at things like sustainability <laughs> indices as well, education and, and well-being across a country, and look at them alongside GDP because GDP in itself isn't necessarily just bad. It's the fact that we have an overemphasis on GDP because the fact that we look at GDP has allowed us to have great expanses in living standards over the last 100 years. It's not bad in itself. It just shouldn't be taken in isolation. Now, we'll get to lean out in a, in a minute, Dawn, but what I want, one of my very favourite preoccupations, and it's not a happy one, is supposing women had been better represented among economists uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, Francis, could, could the crash have been avoided, or is that just pie in the sky? Um, I think that if we weren't so reliant on the financial sector and financiers were less willing to gamble other people's money, then yes, it could have been avoided. But those are obviously quite abstract things. I think one of the things that I, I find really quite interesting is this idea that to get on in, in business and in finance, and I experienced it because I used to work for investment banks, they kind of want you to put yourself out there and be incredibly sort of masculine in your, in your approach. <coughs> but the reality is that the masculine approach is actually high-risk taking. Mm. Interestingly, in uh, 2015, there was a study done at the University of London where what they did was they took male and female volunteers and they gave them um, a trading game to play. Then they took the same volunteers and then they gave them cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and then made them play the same game again. Interestingly, men started taking more and more risks the more cortisol they were given, and cortisol is a stress hormone. So it, and the, the same change wasn't seen in women. So interestingly, it looks at least from this study, and it's just one isolated study, um, as though men under pressure are far more likely to take risks than women are. And I find it interesting that, in a way, the sorts of women that especially are recruited within investment banks, and I'm probably in this category, I'm relatively masculine if we're going to take stereotypes, are, you know, the people who will go and take chances. One of the main things that people do within investment banking interviews is the interviewer will ask the interviewee um, a quick-fire a quick fire question in mathematics. While they're crossing the room to sit down. Yes. Isn't that right? Yeah. And yes. if you have an answer by the time you sat down, that's it, you're out. Now, who is that recruiting? It's recruiting high-risk takers. It's not recruiting people who reflect and have a bit of self-doubt and go, is this the right solution? Those are the people we need in finance, and that's why we need more women. So the gender problem in economics has meant the connection between women's empowerment and economics problems is basically unquestioned. Yes. Because we haven't the number of women economists that we should have and women's view or situation or fluctuations in life. Women are in continuous flux compared to men. and That's a very general statement, I would say. It is, yes. Yeah, it's a very general statement, but it's nonetheless true. Men can go on a trajectory, as you've covered in your book, you know, they, they can go on a fairly straightforward up, upward trajectory if they're lucky, obviously. Whereas women, it's, 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 it's you know, two steps forward, step back, have a baby 
four steps back, have a second baby, eight steps back, <laughs> all that sort of thing. So women's situations, I, I just think, is a whole different take on life. Don't, but it, it, it's, it's, where are all the female economists? Why aren't they? This, this, is a, this is a branch of knowledge that impacts on everybody, mm. on every single thing, on every single part of our life. And yet, for some reason, women economists... I mean, Francis, you paid, just, just as a side note there, you, uh, you um, dared people in a piece you wrote last year to fetch a piece of paper and write something on it. Yes. The name of five famous female economists. Mm. I was going to play this game with you. If I had a little bit longer, I would have played this game <laughs> with you, handed out pieces of paper and said, name five females. Now, some of you might be able to name five males, but I'll bet you could if I reminded you of David McWilliams, for example. I mean, it's, 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 it's the number of males are infinitely more memorable if you think about it for a minute. You, think, you might think Francois, or, um, uh, Francis Rouen, uh, Lagarde, Gillian Tett, uh, Janet Yellen. I don't know how hard you had to think about to get, come up with those names. But this is a huge problem, whereas we can, I could read out a whole list of male yeah. economists. What's the problem, Dawn? Um, one of the big problems, I think, is the way that academia is structured in not, not just Britain, not just island not just in europe but across the world which is um you know there have been lots and lots of big drives to get girls into hard sciences into maths etc um and you know mostly if you look at a lot of the economics courses um yeah if you look at a lot of the economics courses in universities it's a pretty good gender split but when it comes to postgraduate courses on almost every course going um, the gender split starts to skew more towards men, and then when you and then you know and, and there are a very very small number of PhDs, uh, funded PhDs available now. A lot of them tend to go to men, and then when it comes to academia, um, you know, women in particular are really hard hit when when they have children. Um, it, it becomes a huge, huge, huge problem. So um, you know, if, if you look at kind of physics or biology, so you know there are more women than men doing undergraduate physics and biology, um, undergraduate, and then the higher you go, the more men there are. I did English literature, it's very, very female-dominated, and the majority of our professors were men. So that's one big issue. I think the other way, the other issue is that the way that economics is taught, it's very, very traditionalist, it's very, very skewed towards one way of thinking. Um, there's a big movement towards kind of getting more heterodox, um, uh, you know, um, well, basically, a lot, uh, a couple of schools are now looking at trying to get new economic thought onto syllabuses. You know, uh, Manchester have a post-crash society. I know that University of Sussex are looking at trying to get different economic thought um, in. So we have, you know, it's the way it's taught, but equally the way that academia is kind of structured means that it's still very skewed towards men. Men do better, men hire other men, and it's still a huge issue, um, you know, throughout Europe, throughout America. Francis, you've written about this. Yes, I would echo exactly what Dawn mm. said, but also I th there's something that I personally call the men in grey suits problem, which is where if you imagine what an economist looks like, they look like a man in a grey suit. Um, you don't think of a woman at all, instantly. You think of the business reports on the news, and it's always men using terms that nobody understands about financial things that nobody will have any grappling with. There was a ludicrous... Uh, recently, Mariana Matsukatu was on yeah. Question Time, and she was on the front cover of The Times, and, yeah. and I, I think the headline was, 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 was something about about saying, oh, you'd never guess she's an economist. <laughs> and it's like, you know, Mariana Mazzucato, she's extraordinarily smart. She's written brilliantly about, about, a, kind of a, about a different way of thinking about 
um, how government works. And all they could think about was the fact that she was a woman and she looked quite yeah. pretty, and it was just ludicrous. It is quite demeaning, um, mm. but I think there's a massive visibility problem, and the more visible mm. women there are in economics, the more the, the perception will shift. And you will find some, you know, young girls kind of going, oh, maybe this is a possibility and I could be an economist, instead of thinking it's a very closed mm. industry. Well, you yourself, Frances, are an example of somebody who was offered a juicy job after graduation mm. and yes. you turned it down. You chose <laughs> happiness, as she put it. She bought, <laughs> she bought quirky glasses and, and, and what else did you do? You bought a camera? Yeah, I decided yeah. to start filming. My she parents took it, thought she I took was a, insane. She took a severe turn against it. I mean, she probably turned down a lot of money as well, did I, you? I woke up one morning and decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life counting. Um, <laughs> um, but that's, isn't, is that the problem, Frances? Are women looking for something different? Possibly. I don't know. Um, hmm, that's a very good question. I don't know. I think that the people who are in banking probably don't actually like being in banking, mm. though, as across the board, whether they're men or women. Do you think not? <laughs> no. no they want the money. banker who likes banking. You've never met I've one? never met a single person. Have we any bankers in the audience? No? Any bankers? No. <laughs> <laughs> none, that's, none that's going to admit to it anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's gender-specific. I think that there's some certain hostilities that you see within the financial industry. I mean, that I personally witnessed, say... Um, that will put off some women entering the mm. industry. Even if they gain internships, they may not want to go on to a graduate position because they'd feel put off. Well, give us an example of that, Francis. I, I, you, did, you did refer to... This is a bit crude. Okay, I will give yeah. an example. Um, uh, I was once having a photograph taken as part of something I was doing with a bank, which I shall not name, and um, some people were told to kneel at the front of the photograph and there was a voice, a male voice from the back, oh. um, saying, uh, well, get used to being on your knees, ladies, because it's the only way you'll make it in this industry. Um, of course, this was met by a gasp, and as far as I know, the person was reprimanded, but it did happen. Um, and that's very recently, I presume. Uh, how long ago? Oh, I don't want to think about how old I am. A few years. Yeah, probably about... She's 26. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably about six years ago or something. Yeah, so six two, years yeah, ago. Six, 2012, really? it's like yeah. a mere blink. <laughs> this is not 1950s. <laughs> I mean, so economics really has a problem with women from every point of view. As another general example, it's not something that I've experienced personally, is that there was a Twitter account called Goldman Sachs Elevator Gossip, which was supposed to be reporting anonymous things that investment bankers had said, supposedly at Goldman Sachs. I can't possibly comment as to the veracity of this. But women were always referred to as skirts Mm. on that Twitter account. Now, that tallies with my experience. Um, and to be honest, I don't blame most of the people that I worked with in the finance industry. I just think that there's certain problematic individuals. And I'm sure this exists even in things like Parliament. We've mm. had, you know, sexual abuse scandals and things that have been going through within the higher rungs of society in general. But it will put yeah, some Francis, women off. That, that may be so, but I, I, I read some article in the last few days, it may have been in one of your books, I don't know, which, which said saw, somebody saw economics as an outlier with a persistent sex gap in promotion that cannot be readily explained by productivity differences, Dawn. So that suggests there is more than just a few bad apples who say rude things to women. No, absolutely. And um, and you see it everywhere in any 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 kind of posi- any kind of uh, industry that's remotely prestigious. Um, I mean, women women and minorities have to work a lot harder to get promoted. Um, 
And also, I mean, there, there are lots of... I think one big issue we have in society is that the way we hire and the, the way that we advertise jobs, the way that we um, give them to people, the way, that we, uh, the way that we give people promotions is kind of deeply, deeply flawed. And in the same way as with economics, we, um, we tell ourselves that, that, that it's all very rational and that we do it very logically. It's all based on extraordinarily flawed um, kind of... Uh, psychology um, and and behavioural decisions. So, for instance, we'll convince ourselves that when that when we're interviewing somebody, um, that the best way to decide who gets a job or who gets a university place is to interview them, make a decision based on um, on the answers they give you and the impression you get of people. Whereas all that actually does is mean that you're more likely to give it to somebody who who looks like you. So, if you're interviewing for a job and you're a white man who went to Oxford and came from Hampshire, um, you're much more likely to hire somebody who looks like you, comes from the same background. Um, you know, and there are small things that mean that you recognise... Uh, That's fair you know. enough, Dawn. Mm. But Francis, mm. that is, is beginning not to apply in other areas, mm. but it seems to persist in economics. Yes. Do we understand this at all? Why it happens? Yeah, why, why economics is an outlier? No, I wouldn't be 100% certain. I suspect part of it is to do with the fact that it involves mathematics as a subject, but, but that can't be it 100%, because you do see people who are rewarded in, say, mathematics who are women. Yeah, and of course this is all reflected then with women who are in, in, um, in economic, you know, who are working in financial houses yes. and that sort of thing. We have this pay gap. And I know there is some controversy about the methodology devised in, in Bring It Up. But, but, for example, this week, Deloitte's UK division, which was made to include, mm -hmm. finally has included high-earning partners. Um, a 43% pay gap, Dawn. Gender, so a 43% pay, gender mm -hmm. pay gap, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't surprise I mean, me. Does it not surprise you? No, no, it doesn't at all. So what is that? I mean, are women victims? Are women not trying hard enough to climb up? Are they not shoving men out of the way? What should they be at? Do you want to answer? Or should I? <laughs> Um, I think we live in a very, very uh, deeply unequal society that actually is becoming more unequal in many ways, especially for women. Um, I think that uh, basically the gap between the 1% at the top and the rest of us is widening massively. Um, there's a big problem with kind of unearned wealth that perpetuates that. Um, but equally, um, especially in the, in the United Kingdom, we've seen a lot of um, kind of workers' rights that, that have won. Um, you know, International Women's Day on the 10th is, uh, comes out the workers' movement. And in the UK, we've seen a lot of kind of um, hard-won rights being brought back. So, you know, um, it became more difficult to take your employer to a tribunal. You had to pay for that. So, um, and, and the number of and the number of women who, um, you know, we've seen an increase in increasingly precarious workforce. So the number of permanent contracts have gone down massively, and that affects women far more than it does men. Um, and that and that is not just in kind of sports direct type jobs or muck jobs. It's everywhere. So it's in the media, it's in politics, it's in you know economics and stuff. A lot more people are on short term contracts. And that means that all of the biases that we've seen in the past that we had a lot of legislation to deal with are, you know, coming to the fore again. So if, if people in power can hire people who are similar to them, they will. And it becomes a lot more difficult to prove that you are being discriminated against for your gender. 
Dawn, your book is called Lean Out, mm -hmm. which is, as I said, a, a counterblast to Sheryl Sandberg's lead in. Now, you're not entirely, you're not entirely opposed to Sheryl Sandberg's no. thesis. You, you actually agree with some of it. You think some of it is mm. useful and valuable. Just, just, can you just list out a few things that you found yeah. valuable in, in um, Lean Out? Yeah, in. I, think, I, think, I think it works very, very well as an individual self-help manual for, uh, for a young professional woman. So, there are, you know, so if, if you're an individual and you're getting started, so for instance, like reminding yourself to speak in meetings or ask questions or you know um, that could be very very helpful I just I think my issue with it with it was that it was touted as a kind of a, a feminist bible and that this was the way forward for feminism when actually it's very very unthreatening to capital it um, at no point does Sheryl Sandberg ever remotely criticise any of her bosses. It doesn't deal with any of the structures that perpetuate inequality for women. Um, and so, you know, so it's very, very good if you as an individual want to get ahead in your job. But I actually think that we should measure kind of success for women and women's position in society as, you know... Uh, outside of just whether or not individual women are succeeding. And I think that, you know, we're constantly told that women need role models, that minorities mm. need role models, but no kind of white middle-class man I know has ever been told that he needs a role model or even considered Well, that's it. because they're already there. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it wouldn't occur to me to say I'm, I'm a, a white middle-class man needs a role model. Yeah, I think, I think it comes from the idea that, uh, w that, w that women need guidance, they need to be whipped into shape, whereas men are just, you know, very, very straightforward, they know what they're doing. So, uh, The thing I find really, really interesting about the Sheryl Sandberg mm. thing is that very much her thesis does seem to be women should put themselves out there more, which is really applying a very sort of masculine mentality yeah. to the way that women behave, as if that's the correct model. Instead of actually looking at the fact that if you select people to have promotions, say, who are putting themselves out the, out the most, within economics, those are the people you shouldn't be promoting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because those are the psychopaths. They're the ones who are going to be doing the risky financial deals. So economics is a bit kind of... Maybe it's odd, maybe it isn't, in that, that specific sector where you shouldn't be promoting those people. But also when it comes to women, when, when women put themselves forward, forward for, you know, for promotion, like psychological studies show that they're seen as pushy, mm -hmm. whereas when men put themselves forward, they're yeah. seen as confident and you know, successful. Yeah. So you know, it's all very well to tell people to do that. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're in a professional position you know, in a bank or working in economics or you know, in a big company, then you can do that. But if you're a cleaner on a, on a zero-hours contract mm -hmm. and you put yourself forward, you're going to get sacked. Yeah. So you know, yeah. it doesn't work for everybody. No, obviously, no, but. no. They won't won't need advice about putting your hand up at yeah. meetings and that sort of thing. I think self doubt is a very important thing in mm. finance, and I think that's one of the things that's been incredibly lacking for a number of years. And there is a reason for that, and part of the reason is both the men and the women who are being selected are those who don't reflect. Yeah, because there's an interesting reference in one of your books, forgive me, it might be yours, Dawn, uh, where men and women um, are hired to senior jobs and looking at their own hiring positions. That was you. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did they... So, the, so the, mm. the, the men, women and people of colour ended up hiring who when they were given the, the, the White power? men. Because they... Um, basically, there's a big study that showed that um, when you look at... Uh, if, if women or minorities get into senior positions, they ended up hiring uh, white middle-class men at a much higher rate than when white middle-class men got those senior positions. Mm. And that came down to the fact that, when, that, you know, when these results came out, they dug into the reasons why. And it was because women and minorities felt that their hiring decisions were scrutinised far more than other men. So basically, they, they, the, the, they felt within themselves that if they hired more women, if they hired more black and Asian, uh, people into their, into their 
companies, they, they would be seen as acting tokenistically rather than on merit, whereas uh, white men felt a lot freer to do, you know, to hire more diversely. So it's this double bind where people felt um, that they were scrutinised a lot more and so reacted the opposite way. And one of the other things, Francis, um, is that it was notable after the crash that we suddenly had women being wheeled into positions of yeah. seniority. Um, and quite often they were being given jobs that were simply impossible. Yeah. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, I think you mentioned this in your book, don't you? Yeah, is that in your book? Dawn? Yeah, yes. it tends to, Basically, um, whenever. Whenever a company is failing, they parachute in women afterwards. Yeah. It's partly because men don't want to do it. So um, I think <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah. else is thrown in the towel. And yeah, yeah. You employed so, uh, women. So, so following behind was with, it a, with a bucket and a mop. It, it happens across yeah, history. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> whether it's war or finance. Melissa Mayers, I think, was wheeled into Yahoo when Yahoo was just collapsing. Nobody has a Yahoo email address anymore. They bought a load <laughs> of things, and it was quite clear that it was just going to collapse entirely. Yeah. Um, and you know, Jill Abramson at the New York Times was like brought in and then wheeled out quite quickly same with Natalie Newgrad at Le Monde and there were quite a few financial companies and you know um, you know that you know that they're in trouble when they wheel in a woman so it's so she's thrown in um, because basically people don't want to risk you know a high profile man to to have to deal with this so they throw in a woman so that you know it all goes wrong she takes the blame they clear it all up and then a man can come in afterwards and save the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, this is probably the last, the last question I'm going to ask of both of you because I must say it's another little preoccupation of mine is the tech industry, mm. where we all thought this was everybody was starting afresh. This was a whole new world. Uh, they called it disruption. It was going to be amazing. Everybody with equal opportunity. And what has that turned into, Francis? You're making me think of Gamergate more than anything, which is, yes. you know, routine harassment of women online, especially who are involved in either tech or in the gaming industry. And it's become this sort of, like, organised force that ultimately ended up propelling the alt-right to, to winning the presidency. Um, if anything, I think the internet, which obviously is associated with the tech industry, mm. has amplified the voices of those who are more likely to discriminate against women and has given them a place where they can feel comfortable because they're talking to other people who hold the same opinions about women. So, if anything, it's acted as an amplifier for those who, I dare say, are not very nice. Hmm. Isn't that very disappointing? I mean, I think, yeah. I think for me, I think what, what tech really showed us was that everybody got really excited and they said, right, we're going to disrupt everything, we're going to dispense with rules and be entirely creative. And then you realise that actually the rules that were in place in these workplaces functioned very, very well. They stopped, you know, well, they, they, they stopped overt sexual harassment and a lot a lot of these rules were there because they had a function they kept workplaces running smoothly and when you take them away you end up with like college boys acting like absolute children yeah. and discriminating against everybody so th th and then you start to wonder happens. whether that's our default yeah as yeah. human beings Completely. That is, that, that, this is very depressing <laughs> <laughs> so don i'm going to ask you a final question based on the title of your book really lean out where is that going to get us I think, so for me, leaning out is about basically, in, in, instead of, as Sheryl Sandberg says, to become a cog in the system and become, you know, completely immerse yourself in it, work alongside it, it's actually about resisting, it's about building solidarity with other women and protesting. So we've seen a lot more of that. So it's, it's about, rather than, like, fully participating, it's about saying, actually, you know, women can go on strike, women can remove themselves, women can protest. Give me an um, example of where women have won by leaning out. Um, so Newham 
in East London, uh, there was a big group of single mums who were about to be shipped out of the borough. So they were held in a hostel, and then uh, the uh, council said they were going to close the hostel. They were going to move the mothers to Manchester, Birmingham, Blackpool. Um, all, all of these women were, like, uh, between the ages of 16 and 24. They had children. They, their mums and their grandmothers were nearby. They wanted to get jobs so their mums and grandmas could look after their kids while they are at work. And they were just going to be hurled into the middle of nowhere in, like, hostels, you know, hundreds of miles away from anywhere they, they, they lived. And they all worked together with other women in different boroughs, and they uh, got a petition together. They had a, a stall, and they went into the lo- local council, refused to leave. They got loads of your attention and they all managed to stay in Borough. They they convinced them to change it and basically after that they they, they managed to form a wider network that's throughout London has been helping single single mothers and women who are homeless like fight against it and it's made a template for people to fight back against it. It's brought a lot of attention onto the plight of uh, of children temporary accommodation and it's really really worked just by working together and helping other people to follow in their footsteps. Francis, I'm going to give you a last question. If you, if we, we talk about women in the professions, what would leaning out mean? Should they lean out, and what would it mean? I think that leaning out would have to start with the academic economics community and then mm. gradually disseminate out into finance. So that would mean more heterodox economists. You need more visible economists on the TV and radio. Um, and I we think have plenty of them visible, actually, don't we? Yeah. On the TV and radio, yes. Uh, but they're all oh, in, in Ireland. Yes, in, I don't in see Ireland. them in the yes. UK. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I think we need more heterodox economists, and I think that economics needs to be perceived as more accessible, and that's through relatable education and materials about economics. So that the more people that get involved in economics, the easier it is to critique, and that includes the sort of you know sexist bias that you see within economics. The more people understand that economics is understandable, then the more people will understand where its failings mm. are. That is very sensible because I think a lot of us had to do a a crash course 10 years ago in in economics and bonds and collateral this and derivatives that. Realised, in fact, that the people who were engaging in all that kind of dealing actually knew less than we did, (laughs) which is not saying very much. Listen, thank you all so much for coming along. Thank you for listening so attentively. And that's it for today. Thanks to Cathy for chairing such an interesting conversation and to her guests, Frances Wheatman and Dawn Foster. Thanks also to the Mountains to Sea Book Festival for inviting the Women's Podcast along to record the event. The festival takes place from March 21st to 25th and you can find out all about it on mountainstosea.ie. Today's podcast was produced by myself, Jennifer Ryan, and by Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.